I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo, and we have we have just Eddie. It's Teddy Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Marie. It's Mahi Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Vincent. Thank you for being here. I'm Alex Del Sordo, Rose Choice, and we have another interview. And you know, we've been doing this whole IRA NCAA women's uh, interviews, and uh, I have learned. More about rowing in the last nine weeks than 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 I have uh, in in at least ten years, and I got a guy that's been doing this a long time, but we're, he's not that much older than me. You know, we've had we've had some interviews where the men and women are are in their fifties, sixties, and seventies, uh, and I love understanding that knowledge. But now I'm talking to someone who's not only made it a career, which you know we have that in common, uh, is obsessed obsessed with rowing, like so obsessed that. He married a rower, right? And I envision him having these ginormous children that are going to win the Olympics one day. But I have Matt Smith, the associate head coach of Princeton. I never thought I would say that, Princeton. Yeah, we're talking to Princeton now. And we're going to be getting into his entire background, right? Like, so that first stroke, like we always ask, and then moving into his position at Princeton. But then topics that I really want to get a lot more opinion on and some facts about, we're gonna be getting into the future of men's rowing at the collegiate level specifically. Coaching as a profession, right? So we, we talk to athletes and coaches all the time and they always like, well, I can't make it a living. In fact, just the other day, a young high school coach said, I only make $2,500 for an entire season of coaching. How the heck am I supposed to make this my life? And then lastly, uh, which is probably one of the hottest topics in rowing. It's USA rowing. It's like, what, what can USA do or how do we get to winning again, winning at the highest level? Let's get to Matt. Thanks for being here, man. This is great. No, this is, this is awesome. That was a, a great introduction. And uh, th th these are awesome topics and uh, you're doing good stuff. I'm excited. Well, thank you for that. So look, dude, I, I have done so many of these interviews now and I ask the same question and they're always unique. How old were you and where were you when you took that first stroke? Fall of 1992 at Woodbridge Senior High School in uh, Northern Virginia on the Occoquan River. <laughs> Some people say it is the best stretch of water in America. Northern Occoquan, I'm telling you, the Occoquan is one of the best. I, I, I would agree. It's funny, though. I can't for the life of me remember one high school workout I did on that body of water. I, I always try to think back to like, what did we do as workouts? I loved my high school time. Uh, the two coaches I had, the guy that taught me to row is still coaching uh, out at Bear Island Aquatic Center in the Bay Area, a guy by the name of Chris Flynn. And he was in college at the time, I think when he was my novice coach. And then another guy named Tom Mullen, who still coaches uh, at different high schools in Northern Virginia. And he's like, a retired teacher, but now just focuses on coaching novices. Um, so is it, you know, instilled a, a great love of the sport is what I always tell people. Didn't uh, know you could win medals in high school uh, in the sport of rowing, <laughs> you know, but it, but it really did teach me, okay, I loved the sport. You know, we lost a lot of races and uh, by big margins, Um but 92. I, I, so let's, I want to, I want to get into like 92. So the 92 to 96 um, era, uh, you know, some, some of the, the, the prominent high schools back then in the area will always be like WNL, 
right? And you had some like this is this is prominence, right? In that, in that I era. would say prominence is in your neck of the woods, Atlantic City High oh, School, dominating, right? AC, dominating. yep, and LaSalle. All right, uh, so those were the those were the two big ones, I think, in the 94, 95, 96 sort of Stoats scholastics. And how did you compare? Era. Like, how did you compare to those to those athletes oh. at the time? Horrible. <laughs> like, I mean, we weren't, I mean, Atlantic City won scholastics, I think, whatever, SRAAs, one year at like 28 strokes a minute. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it and being like, oh my goodness. And that was like the Funk Brothers, Garbit was in there, you know, amazing guys that I went on to compete against in college. But I mean, you know, my high school um, and who I was as an athlete, I was you know, six foot and 165 pounds. Um, but you know, I think our best finish at sort of a bigger known regatta was for me was the 96 scholastic championships, SRAAs. And like we, we got fifth in the final. We actually made a grand final. Is this the men's eight? Was this the men's eight? Yeah. Men's varsity eight. Yep. Men's varsity eight. Um, and, and we actually beat, um, and I'm allowed to say this because I'm friends with coach Bill Lamb and John Fife and some of those guys, we actually beat St. Joe's prep in the semis to knock them out. Um, Is and, that not not, ha- and not have them make the moment. final. Let's, um, let's, and so I'm let's, laughing because you mentioned this in like a previous podcast with somebody <laughs> of, of sort of thing. Um, but fifth at the end of the day, fifth because Atlantic city was, you know, they were so phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it yeah, was yeah. phenomenal. We, so, so lifeguards, so I was a lifeguard for many years and you knew, you knew growing up. uh, uh, So in 96, I was like 12 years old and you knew they were fast, right? So like in our area, rowing was it, right? So you were a lifeguard rower, you rowed the boat, you, you jumped into scholastic racing, high school racing. And it's like one thing that's missing now in South Jersey is that you're not getting the excitement behind high school rowing like it was, you know, so long ago. All right. So you get fifth, um, big deal. You know, it's a big deal. Uh, where do you go to college? So you, you, you obviously keep going. Where do you go next? Yeah, so I went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison and uh, rode for Chris Clark, who you, awesome, awesome podcast. That was a great interview. And, 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 and uh, you started, hold on, let me interrupt. You started when he sort of started, right? So he like, was, yeah, he was my only collegiate coach. Whoa. Okay. So in that right. 96, 97 year yep. was my freshman year. So he was the freshman coach transitioning yes. to the varsity yes. coach. And then I had him as my varsity coach for, you know, all three years. And the assistant coach who became the freshman coach was Greg Meyer, who, you know, Oh, he and, was my and, coach. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so, as I always say, I think Greg will never say he coached me in college, but he did. He coached. I had basically one coach for one other day, and it was Coach Meyer there uh, <laughs> in my sophomore year when uh, Coach Clark wasn't there for a day or something. All like right, that. I want to. I want your opinion. Um, so we did. We had that interview with with uh, uh, Chris Clark and Wisconsin. What what a, what a wild experience for you as the athlete to watch the guy be your freshman and then get the head coaching position. And it's, I asked him this question, like how much was changed, right? Like how much different did you have of your style? Was it, you know, having Jabo there and then you coming in there? What did you notice with him 
as a coach in that transition two, three year period? It was, I mean, it was awesome. I mean, it was tough. I will say, and coach Clark will readily admit it still. Those were some tough era of just, um, yeah, his coaching, (laughs) you know, it was, it was, you know, I think we, as his last freshman class, we were sort of very attuned to what it was going to be like when he became the varsity coach and guys that he had had the previous couple of years, I think really well, didn't remember that, the, the, the intensity of it, I will say. Um, but you got to also remember I had coach Clark during some of my summers too, um, as a, in pre elite camps, U 23s. So if you add up the number of days that coach Clark, coached me or was around me in my life in college I mean it was astronomical and that's why that's why I do feel like collegiate coaches are very impactful I mean I was around him more than obviously any instructors and my parents I mean I in one stretch of one year I mean I was with him for almost like two years straight with like a few two or three week breaks in there um, sort of things and so there's a true love hate you know like intense relationship there i mean the closest i ever came to quitting the sport was rowing under him um but he also put me on the path to go to the olympics and be a coach now so you know it's you know he's absolutely a mentor and and a genius uh, i I, okay so i don't want to i hate jumping around but um how much of your coaching style because of that experience is related to Chris Clark? Like, are there things that you just know that you do that he did? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in my early days, when I first started coaching, um, you know, I was lucky enough to get a job at Cornell University under Todd Kennett. And that was awesome. But, and I was a freshman coach. That was when we still had freshman rowing. And so absolutely pulled workouts and nuggets from them. I think over the years, as I've sort of sort of growing up in the coaching world I think there are still traits that I try to pull from him I mean he's a master storyteller he's a master of the analogy um he's one of the most well-read individuals in the world I would say and and I can I can't compare on that level but his uh his ability to sort of understand and read the room is pretty impressive and you're so you're always trying to learn from that Uh, why did you why did you um you know, six foot, 165 pounds, um, you know. How did I end up at Wisconsin? Well, yeah, I mean, I would like, you know, yes. How did you end up there? Great question, because the record player stopped in my house and people were kind of like, where are you going and why are you going there? It's really cold. Um, my whole family's from North Carolina. So, you know, I, where, when I went off, uh, part of it was I learned, I decided really late in high school, September, October of my senior year of high school, I wanted to row in college. And I wanted to do it at the division one level. I was done doing the club thing. I wanted to go to a big state school, have that sort of athletic experience. Um, and, and originally, you know, I, I thought I'd want to go to another school. I ended up not getting into that school. So it was now December um, of my senior year. And again, I was six foot, 165 pounds. This is fall of 95. Online recruiting's not really there. Um, I think my best erg in high school was 632. So I, as I look back now, Hey, I was probably a really good lightweight recruit, but I didn't know about that. Like, I just didn't know that was a thing. I didn't even know like recruiting. I wouldn't even know how to do it. 
So I applied to Wisconsin. Uh, I got into Wisconsin. And then I wrote Chris Clark and said, hey, I've been accepted to your school because they had rolling admissions. I'm six foot, 165 pounds is what I do on the ERG. Can I just come row for you? Can I come and row and will I have a chance? Did you write, an, you wrote a letter. I mean, you had to write a yeah. letter, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a letter because he wrote me back a letter and, and I might still have it somewhere. It was like, absolutely. We love you guys. We got two fruit flies stroking our you know freshman eight right now. That's what he called little guys, fruit flies. Um, and that's all I, for me, that's all I really wanted. I didn't, when I went to Wisconsin, I honestly chose the school. Uh, they had a good undergraduate business program. I was, the rowing, like you could see traits of their trend of where they were going. Yeah. Um, so I knew, and, and, and then he said he'd have an opportunity. I went to school too, mind you, uh, on an Army ROTC scholarship. That's how I could go to college yeah. out of state of Virginia. Um, and so that worked. Like, I, you know, my scholarship worked there to be able to do that. And so that's how, yeah, you know, as my mother would say, I was a very independent child. Uh, growing up. And so there was no surprise probably to my parents that I was going off and doing something entirely different and going to a place that you know nobody in my family had ever literally been to that state. Yeah, especially um, like Virginia. I mean, it's a, it's a. Yeah. I grew well, I grew up in a military family. My father was in the military. I was born, I was born in Berlin, uh, Germany. And then we moved back and I lived there from third grade to seventh grade and then we came back to the u.s in eighth grade played soccer in eighth grade but wasn't going to be in the right club system to make the high school teams and so sure. i started that's why i started rowing my parents were like hey this is in our backyard why don't you go try that thing and in 92 what you need to remember too at the level was igor grinko had his scholars based out of the occoquan mm. and in our little townhouse community i remember there was a group of guys big massive hulking guys that I don't I have no idea who they were but they were obviously some of the the top rowers that ended up going to some of those uh you know 93 94 95 96 things um and they were living in the train out of the aquaquan you were you weren't kidding you're you're a great storyteller so I you definitely share that with Chris but I'm I'm, I'm gonna move us along here a little bit I want to know your speed difference from senior year of high school to senior year of college so how much faster did you get in that period of time? Yeah, so in the end, in college, I probably only went 6.16 as a, basically was my best 2K. We only did, this was also the era where the 2K erg test was slowly coming along. Well, you at did Wisconsin, 2500s. You, you did 2500s. Right, at, yeah. at Wisconsin, especially. That was Coach Clark's other thing was 2500s. The only reason we did a 2K was if you were trying out for the national team. So what was and your, you what, was your fastest, uh, what was your fastest? So you you clearly did ten on eight seven on the erg. Well, you definitely we were the first group. To, we were the first group to do that. I can remember exactly when I did it, spring of my sophomore year of college, and the group that tested the workout had done a twenty five hundred the day or two days before. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And we had we had done okay on the twenty five hundred. <laughs> so there were like eight of us that he was like, okay, you guys are doing this workout. The rest of the team did another 2,500. Stop the press. Stop the press. So the 10987 was actually like invented as a workout? No, I, I, no, no, no. I think he actually got it from um, – he either got it from Craig, Americanian, yeah. or uh, Vislav Kuja. 
um, who was a, a coach that coached at Stanford before uh, okay. Craig did. And right, he, so he, he, did got, he had gotten wind of this workout. And so we tried it. We were the first group. I mean, how awful, how awful is it? Isn't it terrible? No, it wasn't that bad. What? I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I, I appreciated that one. Um, how slow did so. you pull then? How slow were you then? The goal was 140 for me. Yeah. My first yeah. time I did it. He was like, break 140 and then that's good. Uh, 138.6. I, I'm great. proud to say that's what I did. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I had and the fact that you remember it, right. It's a, it's, it's great. Oh. <laughs> you remember it's, me. No, it's, it's that it's the obvious, the five by five, right. And the 10, eight, seven, and then the, and then the three by 20, we would do every morning on the erg for a week straight. And it's like, wh- what? And, and it was, a it was a total mind fuck because he goes, you're ranking like Greg Meyer would rank us. Right. And he didn't tell us the whole week's training. So guys were going like, oh, well, I got to go 144, 143 for three by 20. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. We're doing it again tomorrow. So by Friday, you'd be going 155 as an average because you're just dead. Uh, And that was like the thing that Greg Meyer did to us was like he made us strong. Like there's nothing harder than doing an hour of power for score on a Monday Mm -hmm. and ending your week on a 10987. You know, and you experience those things at, at, you know, at Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, 10, all right. 10, 10 by five. That's the hard one for me. That was always, that was the hard one for me. <laughs> all right. So you, you graduate in 2000, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I asked this to a question a lot. It's like, you obviously went to school for not being a coach, right? So uh, what was, what was the plan? You graduate 2000, the Olympics just happened. We lose the Olympics. Uh, what, what's your plan, Matt? What do you do next? So you've got to sort of understand what I was doing during college to sort of get an idea. So if you, if you back up and remember, okay, I was in army ROTC, I went to college on an ROTC scholarship. So I had to graduate in four years. Okay. Um, because that was part of my scholarship sort of thing. I was getting commissioned the summer of 2000. Mind you, every summer while I was in college, so summer 97, 98, 99, I was lucky enough, again, thanks to Chris Clark, I made the under 23 team in 97 in the lightweight four. And then in 98, I made the under 23 team again in the lightweight four and was lucky enough to be invited back to the senior camp and ended up being a spare to senior worlds um, with Greg Hughes, my now boss, um, and he was sort of at the tail end of his collegiate, um, sort of rowing career. He is already coaching at Princeton. And so he and I were spares at the 98 worlds together, um, Whoa. and wow. won the spare pair race. So we're world champions for a day, as we like to say. And then in the summer of 99, when you're in army RTC, you're supposed to go to a, a sort of a leadership camp and that's where you get evaluated. And that's, you're supposed to do it between your, your third and fourth year of college. I sort of thought, okay, hey, like this is my last chance. I'm going to go into the military. I'm going to make one last run at rowing. Um, And so in 99, I made the senior team after my junior year of college. I won the lightweight pair. um, And Greg Greg Hughes was our coach. So he had transitioned from being a teammate. He was my coach that summer, along with John Parker, who was coaching the the Cox pair. So that's summer of 99. Yeah go into the, the year 2000 and there was loose talk of taking that year off to try out for the lightweight four. Um, but I was on the fringes. I, w- I wouldn't have 
really made a serious run at it then. And I knew, okay, hey, I'm, I'm going into the military. I don't know what's going to happen. Both of my parents had worked in the government. My father was in the military. My mom worked in the government. And, and she had actually got wind of a program the Army had called the World Class Athlete Program. And so I sort of knew about this thing for people that were in the Army and had the potential to make the Olympic team. So I, I, in 2000, I graduate. I go to my sort of military camp for ROTC. I get commissioned. And then I'm in the military and I'm, I'm going to my infantry officer schools, uh, airborne school, mechanized leader course, ranger school in Fort Benning, Georgia from essentially Jan December, January of 2000, 2001 through the 01 year. Um, I mean, and so, something, something really big happened in America in 2001. So like, yep, so, you know, so I, I, I don't, September, I, can I bring September, it up with you? Yeah, September of 01, I was in the mountains of Georgia, North Georgia, in the mountain phase of Ranger School. Um, I mean, what and... kind of what kind what was what was going through your body and mind as a Ranger? I mean, like I just like <laughs> well, I would go uh, uh, nuts. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was it was it was very, you know, in the in the end, it, it's all good. My mom worked in the Pentagon. Uh, oh, come on, her offices were the offices that got hit. Oh, I'm she getting chills, to, man. I'm getting yeah, chills. She, Stop it. She happened oh. to be on the other side of the building, buying me a card to mail to me in, in Ranger School, basically just say, hey, things are going well. Um, when that yeah. went down, the day it occurred, we were in on a, out in the field and you kind of hear radios crackle. The instructors come up and they're telling you all this stuff. You're in school, you're in the schoolhouse as we call it. And you just think they're making it up because we weren't taking stuff serious enough. Basically, you know, we weren't taking our exercises, our field training scenarios serious enough. And we're like, oh, this isn't real. We finished that day and the next day training. And then they sort of, we get on buses to go back to this little camp that we were in in North Georgia. And that's when sort of everybody was like, oh, okay, this actually happened. Um, security was at an all-time high. They let anybody that had parents or relative, like, yeah, parents, um that worked in the world trade towers or the pentagon actually call home like normally you wouldn't be allowed to do that you weren't allowed any calls um and so i was like okay well, my mom works there so i went and called and i didn't get anybody at home but i also knew okay if something had really gone wrong the american red cross uh that's what they do in the military they would always come inform you so i kind of knew things were probably okay um but graduated ranger school in, in october of 01 um yeah and it was an intense time it was kind of odd you know it was like a turn not a turning point for me but just a decision point of okay what do I want to do there's obviously conflict going on I've been accepted into this athlete program um and so you know I had some good advisors around me that said hey go go do that it's a once in a lifetime opportunity um sort of thing so I I, I was assigned to the world-class athlete program and best program for amateur athletes, you know, it, my job was to make the Olympic team. I was assigned to Princeton, New Jersey, um, and that was my job. I got evaluated on it. <laughs> my officer evaluation reports all talk about it. Um, I'm sorry. And so did, so, so did that from 02 to 04, lived and trained in, in Princeton, um, made the 04 Olympic team. Uh, what boat were you in for the uh, Olympics? Lightweight four. 
Um, so yeah, I had, I had, you know, rode the under 23 lightweight four a couple times, the under the senior team lightweight pair in O2 coming off of my, my year of military, two years of military stuff. I was in the lightweight eight, um, that year that New York athletic club sponsored, which was awesome. And then, and then made my way into the lightweight four in, in O3 and O4. Um, who was in the boat? Who was in the boat with you? Paul Tatey, Steve Warner, and Pat Todd. Um, so some, some good dudes and, and four very different individuals. You know, I, I, had, I had raced and lost a lot to Paul um, in college. You know, we were basically similar years. Steve Warner went to Michigan, um, and I had raced him a lot, um, just in random Midwest races. And then Pat Todd um, – was a Harvard lightweight. So I never really overlapped race wise mm -hmm. uh, with him. Um, but yeah, Steve Warner, the funny one there is my first collegiate race was the big 10 championships as a freshman. And uh, I caught a, an over the head crab seat popped off and we were racing Michigan and miraculously got the seat back on recovered the stroke seat. I messed him up and, you know, we won by a foot over, over Michigan. And, and that was a, uh, I'll just leave it as it was an interesting bus ride home from Indianapolis for me um, <laughs> at Wisconsin. <laughs> you, uh, but in the end, it, in the end it, it all worked out. Um, when, and, did you, uh, when did you hang up the oar? Like at what, at what point did you say, I, I, I can't do this so, anymore? So I stopped, yeah, so I stopped competitive. So after the 04 Olympics, I went and did some more military stuff, sort of a mid-level management course called the Captain's Career Course. And then I went over to Iraq for a year um, and was on a 10-man team uh, embedded with a 400-person Iraqi unit for the year. Um, and we had three interpreters and sort of a pretty interesting sort of year for me um, and pivotal in, in sort of why I like coaching. Came back from that and, and made one more run at the 08 games. Um, I think I'd left it a little, I, I, in the end, if I had wanted to, I would probably needed another eight to nine months to truly make a run. And I ended up getting sort of a, an injury sort of neurological thing that, you know, rendered me basically not ineligible, but I wasn't effective. And so I was done in 08 from competitive rowing, transitioned out of the military and was getting married to my now wife, Hillary who was the, at the time in 08, she was the head coach at Cornell. So I was moving up to Ithaca, no matter what, because <laughs> I was getting married. Yeah. And initially I thought, okay, I'll just take the year off, maybe go to business school at Cornell, figure out what I want to do, volunteer coach, you know, why not? I'll have some time. At the time, Cornell was going through its own coaching changes. Dan Rook had retired. Todd Kennett became the, the head heavyweight coach. And, you know, I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be around. I'm interested. You should apply for these jobs. You know, the head lightweight job was opening up uh, and the, the freshman coach job was opening up. And I said, OK, sure. They had no sort of, you know, well, let me, let me uh, that I would do it, but ended up being his freshman coach. Let me get a couple things out of the way, because um, I, I, I just I love the history of all this stuff. Right. I like love understanding decision making and um so really quick what was your now i'm just interested what was your fastest 2k as a lightweight in that 04 to 08 sequence six 
614 in the Olympic year is what I ended up going. Yeah, what's wild, best. I mean, for, for – So nothing off the charts. I mean, some of those guys at that time, Steve Warner was, you know, uh, lights out stuff yeah. and, and some of those other guys. Well, I just – I like it because, you know, one, there's a lot of rowers. Like, I get asked this question all the time. Like, let's just – you know, in college you went 616-ish. You, you, you didn't get that much faster on the erg in that period of time. I mean, it, it's, it's very difficult, especially maintaining um, weight. Now, all right, so really quick. So you get married and you're going through these huge life experiences, right? Like racing Olympics, being in Iraq, getting married, all this happening in like a, a one, two-year period – you're like 28, 29, right? You're about, you're about that age. Yeah. 30, 30, 31 in 08. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. So then, all right. So my math is a little off. So you're, you're, you're 30, 31 pivotal moment for any man in his, in his career, right? The thirties is when you start to really hunker down and like make big decisions. So you're in Cornell, you're there for your wife. At this point, you've never coached at all. Like you have, you have military coaching. Vol- yeah, yeah, volunteer once or twice on Wisconsin winter training. Yeah, so I just want to, I just want to explain how absurd this is to the audience. You have zero coaching experience outside of military training, and you get the freshman coach at Cornell. You understand how, how that sounds? Like that's just no, it, 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 no, it was awesome, I, and that's what I'll say. Like Todd Bennett, I mean, he took a flyer on me, absolutely um especially especially when you think about the way things were structured in that time frame and it's not that long ago but okay you were going to be in charge of the freshman squad you know like he he was going to run the varsity squad you were running the freshman squad there wasn't going to be especially the structure we had there there wasn't you know it's like okay hey the freshman will train in these locations at this time and so it was was truly what was the hardest thing that year, your first year coaching? Can you remember, like, what was the, what was the hardest thing you experienced or the toughest? That's a good question. I, I probably just. I think the, the, the initial thing, probably the first time I realized, okay, you put somebody in the tanks, you have to, and this is good for all young coaches. It's not just, oh yeah, take the stroke and start doing this, right? The basics of, This is how you sit in a boat. This is how you hold an oar handle. Really having to take a step back and understand how to, you know, teach the sport. Um, There was also, you know, we were very lucky. I, you know, we had a group walk-ons that year. Um, Cornell's a a big school, so it was still drawing at the time. You know, we had some, some kids that had obviously smart kids that got into that school that we created the opportunity to allow row um and, right, so and, and so teaching is, okay. them. that's a good i mean that's a good way to answer it um now i've asked this a lot to other coaches so you had you had been around really talented coaches in those in in the quadrennial right oh and yeah also at, at chris clark and then you had yeah. todd kennett coming off of winning multiple lightweight eight championships mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. who was it were you going to him for a lot of your your advice and leadership, or who were the other coaches in your life that you were calling and be like, "Hey, I like I can't figure this part out. I could really use some help here." I think if I had a specific question on something, I would I would ask Todd, or luckily enough, I would ask my wife Hillary. Um, oh yeah, I who, mean, you're, you're who's the true stud, right? I mean, I mean, let's 
let's understand that she's the true star, <laughs> two-time Olympian. Yeah. You know, and it's done a, so, how a much lot rowing... of amazing things in her life. Um, but for uh, really, I would just pull nuggets. I mean, again, like you mentioned it. Okay, like if you think about who I was lucky enough to row under in my sort of time, Chris, well, Chris Clark, Mike Tatey, Chris Korzenowski, Curtis Jordan, Tim McLaren. I mean, like all those people coached me, you know, for more than just a day at some point in time. And so there was plenty of things in there that I could pull from of, okay, hey, I would, and I was still young enough to be towards being an athlete. Yeah. And so at that time, you're still thinking, hey, what did I like? What did I dislike as an athlete? And you're doing those things, right? You're not sort of so far removed from the athletic mindset that you've shifted. You're, you're sort of still being able to relate very closely to, you know, hey, how did I feel when the coach walked in and said X, Y, or Z, or that was the workout sort of thing. But for nuts and bolts things, I, Todd and Todd and Hillary. Uh, and Chris Chris Kerber, he 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 was hired at the same time as the lightweight coach there, and, yeah. and he and I had overlapped on the senior team uh, as lightweights, and so I had a relationship with him. Um, so it was good. You know, it's wild. I think that the architects of of U.S. rowing, uh, Korzenowski, Mike Tatey, Curtis Jordan, like these are the architects that that constructed uh, Bushbacher, Harmut Bushbacher, uh, like in these '90s and this '06. And I and I say this quite literally on every podcast. My favorite era of rowing is the 96 to 06 period and, and you were really like soaking it in as an individual um yeah my first i mean i think there's a 30 for 30 special out there somewhere that could be done amazing on if you if you do some digging on the 1997 pre-elite camp in elkhart indiana uh so elkhart indiana is where the 96 women's eight went and briefly trained Okay. And then, so they brought us back when Mike became the head coach and we did a pre-elite camp there for three and a half weeks in the summer of 97 and 98. And if you look at the roster of this 97 camp, the number of Olympians that came out of there that either made the 2000, 2004, or 2008 games, percentage-wise, comical, like the number of guys. I mean, it, at least I was trying to remember last night um, and I was going to text a few guys to see if I missed anybody. At least, okay, three lightweights went on eventually and made one of the Olympic teams. And then at least three or four heavyweights that I remember. You had Brian, that was Brian Wolfenheim's first camp. Sebastian wow. Bea's first camp was there. Um, Sloan Duros, who was a brown rower. And you just had a, I mean, it's just a, a pretty fascinating. So when you think of, you have a heyday of stuff, I mean, it really was. And, and it was these camps that, come one, come all um, sort of thing. You had guys that weren't U23 eligible because they were too old that were still sort of brought in to this thing um, to How train. How much testosterone was in that? I mean, I mean, but I mean, oh, I mean uh, just the coaching, the coaching staffs themselves, yes. right? I mean, that was Chris Clark. Paul Cook was there. Justin Moore, who was the Yale freshman coach, was there. They would bring in some other people at different times. Uh, but serious rowing. And I mean, it was, you know, so it was cool. awesome. It was just, I mean, to be in Elkhart, Indiana, which was the RV capital of the world at the time, um, in host I, families I, and things like that. I, my dream, my dream, like I would go, you know, going back to like, Oh, three, Oh, two, my dream would have been living a camper in Elkhart, Indiana, rowing with those guys every day. That would have been 
it for me. That would have been incredible. You know, I was never good enough to be at that level, but man, that's well, but, awesome. but many of us didn't. I think the thing is many of us didn't. I mean, I remember when coach Clark suggested I go to this camp. He's like, ah, you should go to this camp. You'll get cut, but go for the experience. <laughs> You'll get cut. <laughs> and, and in the end, okay. Hey, I made it, but it, it was, I mean, it was just a, it, yeah, it was a fascinating and then you had to sort of, you were doing this catch all of, okay, who's out there. Let's just create, you sure. know, some opportunities for, for people. All right, let's get back to the career. So Cornell 08, Frosh coach, uh, you know, starting your career in 08 um, and then getting to today. I mean, this, this is a big, this is a big window, you know, like 16 years, uh, you know, 17 years of, of time. What, how, six, how, how much success did you experience as the coach there in those years? Good. I would say, I would say we could, you're going to, you know, I'm not going to, you know, hey, we we medaled in the freshman event. Um, so I was at Cornell from fall of 08 to fall of 2014. Um, and then we had some good runs in there. The freshman medal, the Eastern Sprints, five of those times, I think, something like that, which was impressive for at the time. You know, they hadn't medaled. When, we, when they medaled, when that group of guys medaled, in the spring of 09 that was the first freshman eight medal at cornell since 77 wow um so it was a, a pretty pretty awesome thing you know and again i think it, we just it, the environment was right for it um we had some good guys you know we were coaching well the boathouse as a whole was awesome people were having fun and and, and so good streak in there um and then in the summer of 12, I was lucky enough to, to be an assistant coach to Luke McGee on the under 23 team. Um, that summer helped him coach the eight and straight four. And then again, in the summer of 2013, uh, helped with the under 23 team with Paul Cook. Uh, and we coached the, the eight and straight four there. And both those boats medaled that summer, which was pretty, pretty awesome at the U23 level, the straight four and eight. And then the summer of 2014, I was the head coach of the U23 squad with Wyatt Allen, um, uh, coaching the eight and straight four again. And then so and then in 2014, we I moved to Princeton that summer. And, and I think you you know your next natural question is going to be why. Uh, and, and and I think I don't have to time, run the interview anymore. <laughs> by that time. You know, I think we had had we had had two we're, we have two boys, still have two boys, um, and they were essentially you know two in some months, and so the schedule we ran and, and for my wife being the head coach and for me being the associate head coach at Cornell at that time, you know, it was just okay. You start to sort of see where things are going for your family. And okay, it's easy when the kids are little, but then you start forecasting out, okay, hey, they're going to be in school. What are we doing about winter training trips when we're both trying to do this? And, and so it was a tough decision. Um, you know, and, and I've been approached a couple times from different institutions out there about moving. Hillary obviously was in her own right an amazing national team athlete. So we both knew Princeton. I think at Princeton as a national team athlete is a place you never want to live in per se because you're just kind of like not well off um and it's and you think of route one 
<laughs> I think. But as as a as a as a community, as a university, as a community for a family, it's an amazing, amazing place. Um, and it, it is the it is an epicenter of growing. So you can come here as we are a family of, of you know two people that love the sport of rowing and, and still find ways to be involved in it without it having to both be at a university uh, sort of thing. Right, and so then, job. so you, you know, you're there. I mean, you're there. So, so you're, you're going on, you're going on nine years uh, at Princeton, right? I mean, this is, this is your ninth season at Princeton. Um, what's your, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm doing the math here. What's your favorite, you. what is your fondest memory so far of these nine years at Princeton? I, I think, it, you know, I think it's just like any, you know, you remove races. Races are always fun. I mean, there's some amazing races in there, ones that, you know, guys performed awesome on. But I think, like, I, I more think of just the different uh, funny things that have gone on over time. I mean, I think if I, if I really, not fondest, but just most interesting, um, in, the, in the winter of, I believe it was 2015, when there was an epic winter on the east coast of America, I remember it. I think that I think I mean epic, like late. I mean the Charles River was still frozen on April first, I think, and they were hoping to have it open. They opened it Friday morning for the first set of duels that Saturday. Um, but so I we were down here, and, and okay, hey, we're pretty far south, but it was still frozen in in mid March, and we went out and we spray painted two meter by meter squares on the ice pulled out a bunch of shovels, instruments, tools, and broke the team into ports and starboards and say, cut those squares out. And the first team to stand it up on the apron wins. And we have some smart people here, some engineers, and they knew the depth of the ice. And they were like, they were doing the quick math. They're like, do you know how much that weighs? Like, no, we don't know how much it weighs. <laughs> like, they're like, I think that weighs about 900 to 1,000 pounds, what you want us to do. We're like, okay figure it out right and, and they did and, and it was just amazing I think little things like that and those guys that were on the team at that time they'll always talk about it you know some Australians here that was their first time seeing snow and ice like that and their minds were blown and we're out here literally you know hacking away at it um so for me like it, I don't, it, it, I, I want to just point something this is just I think it's common it's funny right so you know you're a an army guy Wisconsin guy uh it's all about grit right it's get your head down and fucking work right and then you know, i'm a gw guy i grew up in south jersey i don't consider myself all that smart outside of people smarts and you got these engineers at princeton right like like people that are going to lead our country <laughs> to success and they're like wait a minute do you know how much this weighs i would have never have thought that i would just be like well i'm going to put my head down i'm going to cut this piece of ice and we get it out Right. And we had plenty of people like that, too. It was just the guys that could actually solve the math quick enough that were like, holy cow, that's a lot. Let's go at it. Um, and they got creative and did it. So, I, you know, I think little moments like that yeah. Yeah. are, you know, right up there with, you know, winning national championships in different boats, winning Eastern sprints in different boats. And right, those, like, those are all awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to get we're going to get into the we're going to get into the focus now of my first three questions uh and funny enough you were not kidding you're like oh it's been 45 minutes and we get to the questions um so you win matt you win um uh, 
future of men's rowing. I just want to touch on this uh, as briefly as we can. Uh, Princeton hasn't won the IRA in I don't even know how long. Uh, it's been the same three teams over and over and over again. Uh, I, in fact, I don't even remember the last time Princeton medaled at the IRA in the men's eight. I can't, I can't remember. Um, 16 or 17. 16 or 17. So, yeah, so there has been some. 2017, yeah, we, we, we. Third? Yeah. Okay. So there's some pretty fast guys. We do have nine, just that we do have nine medals since 2015 at the IRA and two national titles <laughs> in two different boat classes. No, it's just, to, just, just to make sure we don't have too much recency bias going on. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of leading into that a little. Yeah, okay, so uh, um, it's, uh, I, I've, heard, I've heard rumors where rowers love this kind of stuff. They're like, I heard Princeton has 12 guys under six minutes. They got 15 guys under six minutes. Like the three of these got guys under six minutes. Like you hear these rumors, right? And Reddit lets it run, run amok. Um, how do we get a Princeton crew to win the IRA? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, I think that's the, that's a, where it's all, it's a work in progress every year. I think they, they, that's the goal. Eastern sprints, IRAs. Um, I think when you look at men's collegiate right rowing right now, it's at, I mean, it's an amazing level. It really is. I was telling the team that the other day when I was, in college graduated in 2000 hey it was an all-time high you know it, it was you know, cow that was when cow was re resurgence and you know guys showed up to the ira those years with shirts that said abc anybody but cow hey and so i always talk about things going trends right everybody's like oh princeton's never gonna win right people never thought washington was gonna ever lose when they went on their streak never nobody ever thought ucla basketball was ever gonna lose Nobody ever thinks Yale was going to lose. And so it's, it's the sport. It, it goes in trends. I think it's going to come down to, hey, firing on all cylinders, having the right group of guys, and then getting a little lucky. I'll be honest. I think that's, that's what it takes. There's no – if there were a formula, all of us would be doing it. But these are collegiate athletes. They're not robots. Mm -hmm. And you're developing them. And, and, hey, you know, I think COVID put an interruption in there. And, and we handled it differently than some other teams out there. And so I think you're sort of in this weird spot right now, at least in men's rowing and some teams until you sort of have, as I call it, a, a COVID flush out and sort of you, you normalize the year groups and sort of the roster sizes right now. Um, you think it's important to um, my, my, I have a, I, my argument is that we should get into the bowl system and we should have more divisions in men's rowing and, and really open this thing up. I, I think uh, I forget who I talked to. I, I think it was, no, I've, I, we haven't aired this podcast yet, but um, freshman rowing should, I, I, that should be back. We should have freshman rowing back and have that division. Um, I'd love I love your take on that. I, I, I'd, I'd love to know what you think about that topic. Yeah. I, I think there's pros and cons to all of it. I mean, I, again, having been a freshman coach, I can see the draw of it. I also see how right now, when I look at our team and those freshmen walk in the door, they've got 40 instant friends and your best guys get to be with the best people right away. Hmm. And, and, and you're not sort of as a freshman coach, you were sort of always coaching your bottom guys because you had to make this boat. 
And so many times your best guys in that freshman year did not get developed because they were so good. It was like, okay, I'm putting out fires somewhere else. Take, take you, you the know? athlete side, take the athlete athlete side out of it, right? The pressure of an 18 year old kid to be at the highest level and miss that transition. I, I think that's the, I think that's the reason to bring back freshman rowing. I, I, I'll say I, I disagree a little. I think their transition now is better because they are immediately with upperclassmen that knows what's going on. As a freshman rower, many times it was the blind leading the blind. Okay. And they just, did, they just didn't know what was going on. And then all of a sudden they had the sophomore slump. I think you've mentioned that before, right? They, I have. They, I've had that. Yeah. Right? They, they all of a sudden they're like, what? What is this varsity team? What am I okay. doing? And school, whereas now that kind of occurs in the first six weeks of school. They kind of understand like the scope, they understand the academic things and they understand and they, and you've got here, Hey, the, the upperclassmen are awesome. They they're pumped to row with those guys. They're in there showing them the way, both, you know, academically, socially, and within the team uh, sort of thing. Every institution is going to be different than that though. I think, okay, Hey, you know, the Naval Academy, Wisconsin. Okay. Maybe it'd be a little bit different for us. We're never going to have a roster of six to seven to eight eights, yeah. right? We're always going to we're always going to be our our sort of four to five eight squad, five eight guys. Um, so it's just different. I think that's where every every place is different, and and so it, it you know, how do you handle that is going to be, and every squad handles it differently still. And that's it, not to say that many squads, hey, they do run a freshman squad still throughout the fall. You, you, you look, you hit the nail on the head for me. I mean, the, the sophomore slump, I mean, having experienced it, I, I have to say you're right. And I think that we got to give these younger athletes, you know, the, the older guys in us are like, oh, that generation sucks. They're, they're terrible. It's like, no, you know what? Give them some credit. Like they're really intelligent people. They really understand things a lot differently than probably you and I did back then. There's more information available. Um, all right, let's. This, this one topic for me drives me insane. And I, and I, um, I'm sitting here in my office, I'm in Baltimore, and every day nonstop running through my brain and my heart is, how do we make rowing a more legitimate sport to the masses? And how do we get more people engaged in the sport? Um, lacrosse, so you and I both have kids about the same age. I got a nine-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. And they have every tool they need, right? They have basketball, lacrosse. I do, we just signed up Graham for a lacrosse camp this uh, mm -hmm. spring. Yep. There's 225,000 lacrosse players in high school. There's 25,000 roughly high school juniors rowing in, in America. My thing is, if you make coaching legitimate, you make it a viable position for someone to make it their career. It'll give, it's trickle down. It gives the kids that experience, right? And they're like, oh, they're bought in and, and they take it more seriously. What's your take on the future of coaching and making it a profession for people at multiple levels. How important is it? How do we get there? I think that's, a, that's an amazing question. How do we get there is the, is the tough one. I, I, I think, you know, how do you make it legitimate? How do we make the sport legitimate? Um, you know, and it's good that you mentioned youth sports. You know, I just did the U.S. rowing level three certification. Partially okay. just be, partially because I felt like, hey, that's my responsibility as a collegiate coach to go through these things. You know, I got the email from my son's youth soccer coach that he had just returned from a coaching clinic in Europe. 
And it's like, okay, if they're what? doing that at the youth, if they're doing that at the youth level, why in rowing do we sometimes try to be difficult and say, well, I don't need to get certified. I don't need to do that. They kind of do it in every other yeah. sport, whether yeah, you agree yeah. with it or not. And, and, and so I think that's one step, but you hit the nail on the head. I, I do. Hey, it's a, it's a profession that we're not in for the money. And as the sport grows, and I see it here in Mercer County, hey, there is a demand for middle school rowing. The problem is they don't have the, the coaching infrastructure at many places to be able to provide that. So then it becomes, okay, well, do you just charge more dues? Okay, well, great. Now we're making the sport even more out of reach for yeah. more people. And, and so I, I don't, I, I, I am, I think many, many, I mean, there's some amazing people out there trying to conquer this problem um, and get creative with it to, to, hey, whether it's just opening the doors to more people or just to, okay, yeah, like, as you say, legitimizing the coaches and, and allowing coaches who do love the sport, like I do, I, that's why I, I they just love rowing. Yeah, um, right. yeah. How to let them, okay, hey, yeah, I, I want to do this and I want to do it at a high level, but I don't, I don't want to have to be doing three other jobs at the same time. You, so um, you're, you're so unique, uh, Matt. You came into a coaching position, which I assume was good enough to cover your living expenses at Cornell, right? Like you, you didn't have to have a side hustle to survive, correct. right? Yeah, no, okay. I was very lucky, very lucky, yeah. And Princeton's the same way, right? Princeton's an endowed you know, program. You, you, I'm assuming that you, you, you have a, a good living. So yeah, no, no rowing coach goes into this to make a lot of money. We know that we're not gonna be basketball coaches at the NCAA level or at the, at the professional level making millions, all right? I, where I said, I think the answer is you start at the equipment level, which equipment's become very expensive. So if we can scale down the equipment costs, uh, which is very possible uh, from where I sit, mm -hmm. um, the dues are the dues. And you as a parent knows, I want to say this, I'm a little tongue in cheek here, but there's no amount of money I wouldn't give my children for that experience, right? So if the dues are $1,000 or if the dues are $500, I'm going to come up with a difference, right? Mm -hmm. Because if my child really wants to do this, um, I, we're not going to solve it. You and I, I don't think you and I are smart enough maybe to solve it. Um, I'm just putting it out there that I believe for the sport to really make a difference. We have to make coaching a position that doesn't require four side hustles to survive. No, I, I, I entirely agree with you. And I think that, you know, it's, I just, I, I, I watched some of these junior programs. They're immense and it's awesome. They're huge. They're huge. And I think, so to me, that's exciting. I look at Northern Virginia where I rode every high school. That's a new high school is built. They start a rowing program. Yeah. Right. And that's awesome. I think that is awesome. Um, and it's just a matter of, okay. I think it, you see it in other youth sports. Hey, we need parents to help coach the leagues. How do we, almost have a coaching education so people that maybe weren't rowers can become coaches right there are some several famous well-known world-class rowers that were in that that realm right well, you know, i think I'm, you could do it at the youth level i mean my dad never played soccer he coached me when i was a young child <laughs> like he read a book and, and, and maybe there's book. an opportunity there i, I don't know 
Um, uh, you know, you said, you said to me earlier, uh, you said, I had asked, what was the hardest thing you learned that had to go through your freshman year right. of coaching? Yeah. And you said, teaching the stroke, right? Educating the person. And, and um, uh, I don't know if you know this, this person, um, but well, Stan Bergman. Yeah. Uh, I met, so Stan Bergman and, and Larry Connell, I, when I went to visit UPenn, they were the ones standing in the hallway. And I was like, hey, are the lightweight coaches around? And they were like, no, but you ever thought about being a heavyweight? <laughs> and in hindsight, I probably should have followed up with them like, at some point in time in the recruiting thing. So, so I, was at, I was at Mainland in that 99-2000, right? And Larry Connell, his house is right where we row. Stan Bergman was floating around. And his son, Eric Bergman, taught us how to row. He was my freshman coach. And uh, Dave Funk is floating around, you know, one of the Funk brothers from the 96 era. And then the Garbutt brothers were around. Um, it was their enthusiasm and their love of the sport that got me to keep, keep going. And I think it's so essential to have a fantastic coach at the freshman level or at that novice level. Um, Your entry point to the sport. It's the, the entry point of the sport needs to have someone who's a cheerleader for rowing, right? And has maybe found success. And um, anyone listening in on this that, that's running a program, and that maybe you agree with me, is it's so important to have that kind of person leading the charge for someone entering into the sport. Like you have to invest in that person more than you probably would want to. That's my right. opinion. I, I 100%. And I, I think that's why Tom Mullen, who I, who was my sort of varsity coach, sophomore, junior, senior of high school, I think he stopped coaching varsity and he just loved coaching novices. It's awesome. And that's what he still does. And I, that's perfect. Like kids will enter the sport um, doing that. I think it, it's hard, you know, to find those people. I'll be honest, right? If people want to coach the varsity, yeah. want to have yeah, the, egos. The, the, it's the egos. The, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think that, yeah, it's, you know, finding somebody that can teach the basic mechanics and also has safety as a priority. I think that those are, for me, that was a, not an issue. I had just done enough things in my life. My, yeah. my job in the military, like, like it, I knew what was right and wrong. I knew what was safe and unsafe and how to make calculated decisions. So that, that was never, that's never been sort of a thing, but I do think that is something that many young coaches out there that aren't in what we might call well-funded or good programs, like need to just be aware of. I like, think, that, uh, that has to be a paramount, especially at the high school level, youth level. Yeah. Well, I, I think I came, I think I have a, a good solution. I'm an ideas guy, Matt. And I think I just wrote down the idea. I'm not going to tell you what it is, uh, but <laughs> I got I to flush it out. <laughs> All right. Last question. Last question. Um, you were around, your wife was around the best era in men and women's rowing in the U S like not ever, you know, we were really good, you know, 60 years ago, but dominating force right 04 olympic 8 08 olympic 8 women's rowing i don't want to have to always look back to history and say we should be like that because I, I always think moving forward what do we got to do to win the olympics matt what do you think our focus should be and you can just say hey alex i don't want to talk about it but i think you do and i want to know like it's so important for america to win in the olympics like that's our culture right our culture is to win and what do we got to do? How do we get back to those glory days? Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. I, I, there's no easy solution. I think the, you know, the Olympics now 
are more competitive than they've ever been. That's good for the sport of rowing. I think that, you know, right in the end, it's good for the sport of rowing. There is like multiple countries winning multiple medals. Um, frustrating maybe for us, you know, rooting for our own country to do well. Um, and, and I think, hey, it's going to come down to no different than it, at the collegiate level, right? Having the athletes, creating the environment, training them well and, and getting a little lucky too. I, I do think, Hey, like you got to find a way just as we as collegiate coaches are evolving with how the athletes are evolving. You've got to continue to evolve with the athletes. Yeah, and yeah. you, you want to listen to them, but I also think that you, you, you know, sometimes you got to tr- trust their gut, your gut as a coach. Right. And, and numbers never, I'm sort of a person that's like, like, how do we get more involved? How do we get more people wanting to aspire to that level? I think that's the tough part right now. There's so many options, jobs, other things. How do you get somebody to, to quote unquote, invest in wanting to go to the Olympics? And I'm not going to say a sacrifice. I'm not going to say risk. I'm going to say invest. Because I don't think, oh, right? It, like, it can't be seen, oh, as I sacrifice stuff. Like, no, you made an investment. And, and, and it goes back to, I'll, I, it goes back to what we've talked about. It goes back to, you know, I, I hear it like love of the sport, right? How do you get people to love the sport so much that they want to go do that and can do it? I do understand the financial implications. these days. I understand that. I understand, Hey, I want to be able to do this, but be able to get a job out, you know, in something afterwards. So how do you, you manage those things? Um, and, and I don't think you have to reinvent the wheel. I, I honestly don't. I think, hey, like, you know, it's it's been done. We're just kind of having to evolve it. Um, I, mean, I think we just got to make sure there's pathways so people see some glimmer of doing it. I think the tough part, I'll be honest, at the elite level right now is you've gotten rid of these events that used to be pathway events, in my opinion. The Coxed Pair, the Coxed Four, the Lightweight Eight. You know, things like that where, okay, hey, if I wasn't in the Olympic class boat, I still have the opportunity to go to the senior world championships yeah. and, and validate myself a little bit in that, that cycle, in that summer and think, okay, I can keep training. Now it's kind of, okay, you don't make a team, you don't make a boat, you don't make it. And, and hey, we could say that's sport, fine, it's sport. But again, it goes back to there's so many other things pulling people. How do you make sure to keep them interested? And I think, you know, some of the things I heard this summer, you know, California Rowing Club was doing, I thought was awesome. Like they went and trained in, in, you know, over in Croatia with guys that weren't going to, you know, make stuff. And I think little things like that, again, that was my experience, you know, 97, 98 pre-elite camps, you know, come that's one, a culture come thing. All. So that, that's, that's like a culture thing, right? The culture, you, 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 I've talked to a dozen of those guys in that era and it's like, it was what they loved was the culture, the other people involved, right? Like you, you, you get, you get the group that's invested, as you say, to that success, you get enough of them and it's an unstoppable force. Um, and yeah, you're, I, I, I like what you said about making an investment. Like it's um, it was Scott Fransden. And I talked about that, you know, he never felt it was a sacrifice. He said, this was what I was doing. And um, I didn't, it didn't matter. I think not, this is verbatim here, but this is like, 
I wasn't sacrificing missing the weddings, missing the whatever. Like this is what I wanted to do, and um, it's a choice. It's a choice. Yeah, there's more right? choice. You know, and, and, and I more think choice. that's you know that that's the thing. You got to have some passion for what you're doing, and I'll be hey, I I think if somebody's in it purely for the medals, they're gonna get let down. Yeah. <laughs> the metal the metal and this is what i talk to guys about here all the time it's like hey like you can't let an erg score winning a certain race being in a certain boat be your sole motivator right if that's your sole motivator you will get let down at some point in time most likely rather that could be more of a result of the process and what you're doing and the passion you have for what you're doing um sort of thing it's not that those things don't matter they absolutely matter they care but they can't be the one thing that's going to say oh man because i lost that race the whole season was a waste sure okay, really like okay you know you're I, gonna have I, life lessons in there i think it's no i think it's no coincidence that i'm so engaged in rowing and i watched the men's eight win the olympics in 2004 uh at my at like that was like my pivotal moment of like okay i'm gonna make this thing i'm gonna really invest and then watching the women just fucking dominate mm -hmm. for three cycles it's no coincidence and now you have these youth rowers in america that have not watched a competitive women's eight or men's eight or whatever win they need to see that i'm i am dead convinced that young youth rowers need to watch that to say and it's subconscious. Like I could, Ooh, man, what a, what, a, what a thrill. Look at a, look at us. Right. Um, I, I, I agree. I, but I do think it's out there. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, look at junior Rowan. It's exploded. I mean, it is, a, it is big. I mean, it is, there's a lot of it going on. I do think it, it's how do you get people to continue to want to do those, those long hours of, okay. Transitioning from college into the elite level. Right. And hey, like things are going faster. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's more professional, but it is harder and harder. Right. It's, it's the Olympics. You know, I didn't win a medal. It's you know, it, it, it's supposed to be hard. Right. And, and so I think it's just how do you get people to be okay with that and not feel the, the societal pressures mm. um, to go and do other things? You know, I think we see it at the university level, you see it especially. Right, I'm supposed to go and and do X, Y, and Z. Well, you don't have to. It's okay, right, right? Right, like it's okay to, you know, go be a professional chef. It's okay to go try those things, right? Don't, you know, and I think that's hindsight's twenty twenty, and you see it. People graduate university, they'll do something for two years, and then they'll they'll sort of have that eye opening. Oh yeah, I get it now. But it, and I think that's what's important as our job is college coaches it's just kind of reinforce that message hey yeah it's okay yeah. it might seem like a risk to you but it's not like, you'll figure it out um, and not feel like you have to have all the answers right away or know what the result is going to be um right there's also that mentality a little bit just of well i want to know what's going to happen last uh this is the very last thing because like i just I have to ask this question and I don't, I don't know if you're like going to say anything or not, but uh, Syracuse crushed it this fall. Kind of went on a, on a high note here. Princeton had a pretty good fall. Not to say you guys weren't slouches. You guys had a pretty good fall this year. Um, we got Cal 
obviously at the top right now. What's your prediction? Give me like, give me the, give me the, give me the six teams that make the grand final IRA this June. Come on, give it to me. I want to know what your six are. No, I don't, I, I, I don't care about ranking just who your six. You know, I think, I think there are legitimately 13 programs that can do it. Okay, I fine. Don't, That's don't, fine. But who are the top I don't six? I don't, I, we'll find out on what is it june 1st to 3rd is what we're gonna find out all right that's what that's what we if if i knew it it we we box the shirt people would start boxing shirts up and mailing them but that's why we race right i think that's why we do it that's the the good part about it all Does, Um, does does cal get dethroned what do you think you don't know. It, it, I think I listen. I I I think there are legitimately, um, I would say there are legitimately thirteen to fourteen programs that can make the IRA final. I agree. I think I think there are legitimately, you know, you, again, we all need everything to go right. Yeah. If, yeah. if you have everything go right and and you catch a flyer, I think there are like, like there's seven to eight teams that could win it. Okay, that's a stretch. You could say that's a stretch, but hey, like I, all of a sudden, one team's missing one guy. Yeah, I mean, what I love about uh, like having that it, much it, depth is uh, it means that the semifinals is the final, right? Like the semifinals. That, that, is, I, that is exactly what I said, right? My yep. senior, you know, when I was in college, yeah, there were seven teams competing for the final. Sure. There was sort of a hard semi, and then there was like, I don't want to say the gimme, but you kind of knew yeah. what was going to happen. Now, I mean, it is, it is amazing. As a coach, hey, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is nuts. Um, but again, for the, for, for the sport of rowing, I do think it, it is good. Um, can we get even more and more parity in there? Sure. I, but things go in cycles. Thir, thir, having, having 13 legitimate teams to make the final is a great story to tell, right? It's no longer the seven, right? And now having talked to most of the IRA men's coaches level, like it's true. There's a lot of, there, 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 there's a lot of opportunity. All right. You know, Matt, you started in 92 with the Occoquan. You're the associate head coach of Princeton. Uh, what a journey. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. I had a great time talking. I hope you enjoyed this too. That was uh, awesome. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Everyone tuning in. This is episode 10 season four. We just chatted with Matt smith matthew smith uh the associate head coach of princeton university uh and and we ran the gamut now if you i think the season's about to start here we're about like a month and a half away from the first race coming down uh cheer on the tigers and uh i will be seeing you matt i'm sure at the ira uh and i'll be standing there watching it so i look forward to seeing you there and thanks thanks alex all right everybody thanks